Podcasting with Carrie Jones. Hi guys, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I travelled down to Hampshire to meet my guest at his home at Diva Springs. He's been an angling journalist for over 30 years and has many notable achievements to his name, including catching the first UK 20-pound rainbow trout, a £70 king salmon on the fly, plus a £5 Arctic grayling caught in Alaska. He also talks of his new book, fly fishing trout in small waters. Welcome to my chat with Peter Cockwell. Thanks for inviting me to Diva Springs and it's now your home as well. Yeah, oddly enough, I live here now. I never thought that would happen, but you never know in life what's going to happen, do you? And how many long years have you been here? Uh, nearly five now, yeah. Wow. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the manager. Stuart Barrett, he's the manager and he's the guy who runs the fishery and rears all these lovely fish and um, I just do a couple of days of infill things, talk to the people, work a little bit and it seems to work. Idyllic. So where were you before then? Well I had this, a shop for um, 21, 31 years altogether um, but I also at the same time I was running a syndicate fishery in Surrey so I ran that one for 34 years. So where was the shop in Guildford is it? Uh, on the edge of Guildford yeah a little village called Albury where Albury Estate Fisheries are, because that's quite a well-known small steward complex. Oh, right, yeah. Is that by a roundabout, the entrance to it? No? It's, there's quite a few different fisheries down through the valley of the oh, little right. river Tillingbourne. And, um, yeah, they've been there a long time and very successful too. So you had a tackle shop there for how mm. long? I was, that one was for 20-odd years, and then I, prior to that I was in a nearby town um, for another 11 years before that. I started it with a guy called Gary Brooker who wrote Whiter Shade of Pale, if you remember that, oh, yeah, that yeah. old song. And um, We started the shop, you mean? Yeah, we started it together because Gary's a fisherman. And um, we, 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 it ended up with just me. But um, And Gary passed away a few months ago now. Uh, so, yeah, he's been an active fishing friend for a very long time. And it was really him who got me into travelling. Because, you know, I'm Cornish, I hadn't, apart from moving and living in Surrey, I hadn't really gone anywhere in my sad little life, I suppose. And then Gary said to me one day, um, uh, do you want to come out to Oregon with me? I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he'd met this guy, Jim Teeny, when he was on tour out there, with his, you know, that's what he does. Um, and he'd made friends with Jim. And so we went and stayed with Jim for a fortnight and went fishing and, and I made friends instantly with Jimmy and so it went on from there. Up until that point did you fish rivers? Oh yeah I mean I learnt my fishing on little rivers in Cornwall. Is it? You mm. say in Cornwall do you know what um, I couldn't quite make out your accent where you actually come from but it is Cornwall originally then. Yeah no look you're by course I be and I. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went last summer um, I met Simon Kidd Mm -hmm. Down in, I had to go to Snowby, the actual place in uh, Plymouth, 
And then uh, I was going to salt water fly fish we were going to then, but for the bass, but it, it didn't work out. And he said, have you ever fished Colliford? He said. And I said, no, I, I'd never even heard of the place. And I went there this season, right, this year, uh, around about August time. I just had a podcast on it, actually. Honest to God, it blew my mind. It's lovely, isn't it? Oh, and because uh, what happened when I was fishing it, I, he joined me later on in the evening, but the water was down. And uh, I don't know, there was a sense of the place. That it's, it was lovely in, on the moors, you know, with that wildness. Mm. I like it. And I started fishing, just walking the bank. And then all of a sudden, I had this almighty boil of a fish in the side. And because I read up on it, to hear, and I heard this fish up to nine pound, I heard, wild fish over the years. And I thought, Jesus, I just had a great pull there. Now I thought it was a big fish. And then it happened again and again. I thought, something's not right here now. And I realised then, because what happened? I was fishing a team of wets, but I actually had an eight-pound common carp. Ah. There's loads of commons there. Wow. And uh, so he, um, Simon came later. We had lots of brown trout and carp on the fly. Incredible. What was nice, the evening was lovely. The sun, sun went down. And then the full moon came up at the same time, right? And mm. it was quite surreal. And we went back then, and this is what I like after a day's fishing, go back to a nice pub. And what was the name of that pub? No, on the moors. Jamaica Inn. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we had a, a pint or two in the Jamaica Inn. These old-fashioned glasses as well, you know, the one with the, like, mottled... The old pints, mm. and it was... Um, Fantastic place. It's full of history, isn't it? Yeah, the feel of the place. Yeah. it is. I mean, you see Bodmin Moor on a misty, foggy night. It's creepy. Yeah. I mean, you can really believe in the, you know, the animal that's supposed to be there, the beast of Bodmin Moor. You, you can believe it on some of those nights. Yeah, yeah. I um, so, I, I started work for the Riverboard in... in in what you would pronounce as Launceston. Yeah. But it's actually pronounced Lanson. Right. <laughs> and um, that's where I started work, in the fisheries lab there. Oh, did you? Yeah, because what I really am is a water chemist, and, and but that was me on the fisheries down there. And um, I had a scooter back then, and one night I had to get home from Bodmin to, to Lanson and back to Bude in a thick fog. And going over Bodmin Moor then, in a little old scooter, I could only see the white line, just. <laughs> and I just had to follow the white line. And if I'd broken down, I would have had no idea where I was. Yeah. But, you know, it was different then. You didn't see cars. Yeah. That's an awfully long time ago. I'm looking forward to going back there again, actually, next year. Colliford's wonderful. I, I fished it from when it was first flooded. Was it? Yeah. And it's a nice shape, isn't it? It's just oh, it's great. Place. Did you go out onto a, a place called Stuffle Point? I just stayed near the dam. Okay, no, I, there's, there's a place at Stuffle Point we used to like going to, but um, but you know that you see when I grew up, a twelve ounce fish was huge. Yeah, and if you had a, a trout of a pound in some of those little streams, it was phenomenal. Yeah, and the lakes are, there used to be the old what's now called Lower Tamar Lake, which was stocked with six-inch brownies. And a fish of a pound from that was f phenomenal. 
Um, but of course, that was in the days pre-cormorant, when you could stock small fish, and they would grow if they could. Look at my diaries now and some of the pictures there of fish from the Tamar averaging five ounces. Well, that's all there was, yeah. and you were happy with it. Yeah. The size limit was seven inches in Cornwall. And if you could make it stretch to seven inches on a ruler, well, smack, you took it home. <laughs> Imagine if you could have, have a, like a, a time traveller, if you came back then and just walked these pools, you know, what we've just been on tonight. Wow, to see these double-figure fish. Life moves on, doesn't it? it yeah. And it changes. But I still love the, the wild fish, if you like, and the little rivers. And I, I got a friend from Cornwall who's coming to see me tomorrow. That We went to school together. And um, and we we do go and walk those streams when I'm down home. And God, do you remember the 10 ounces I caught in that pool? Yeah. You know, when I was shouting for the net. <laughs> <laughs> so how did it all start for you then? When did you pick up a rod for the first time? Oh, my, my dad, because we lived in, in Bude on the north coast and um, there was a canal right outside us. And um, my dad got me fishing when I was about five. Was it? And um, it went on from there because the canal was literally 50 yards outside the door and it had exceptional roach and dace in it back in those days. And, um, and I really loved them. And I sort of got into trout with a spinner, with a little tiny spinning rod and a size nought maps. And I, I was a bad boy then, really, because it was deadly. And my next-door next neighbour, a guy called Tony Guscott, he um, said to me one day, he said, uh, it's time you learnt to fish properly. He said, you're going to fly fish from now on. And um, he taught me to fly fish. Did he? I still see his son nowadays. We fish together. <clears throat> and then uh, another guy there was friends with my dad. He was a postman. He taught me to tie flies when I was 14. And so it went on. Have you um, still got the, your first fly rod? No. I've still got my first spinning rod. Have you? Yeah. I bet it was Woolworth. Everyone seemed to ask. They had it from Woolworth. Well, I bought it in a, a local shop in, in Bude. So oh, right. there's no name on it, but it was sol you know, solid glass, blue, and you could turn it in a complete circle. Yeah. And, um, yeah, crikey, rods changed, didn't they? And then... I, I remember buying my first proper rod. I went to Exeter and bought a Hardy's Hardy Gem. Oh. And um, being really smart, I was riding my tow, uh, bicycle up a towpath on the canal with the rod in its two sections and somehow managed to put it in the front wheel. Oh. Bye-bye, Rod. That was a sad day. Um, Had you been fishing or coming? Are you going? I was moving places, you know, moving to a different spot. Oh, no. But... Uh, <laughs> And, and then I sort of got into competition casting, I've no idea why. Um, and we started with split cane, because this newfangled fibre glass was coming into things. Very suspicious of that. And uh, we used to do casting tournaments down at Bude on the canal. You know, you'd have your horrible old split cane rod and umpteen gazillion false casts and... You know, 19 yards, 2 inches, yay, look at that. And then um, somebody had one of these glass fibre rods and a shooting head. I mean, what the hell was yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. And they stood up there and whack, 34 yards. What? <laughs> and, you know, life was changing quite yeah. quickly. 
in the it fishy was. world. Because I remember I, I came into it when fiberglass was the the, um, the material then, split cane. I've never owned a split cane rod. Well. No, but um, the fiberglass, I built my very own, the very first rod I had, I built. And uh, after school, uh, the, the guy, time flies, and then I built the rod as well. And uh, I kept it quiet because my mother didn't want me to go fishing. And uh, I remember I saved up some money as well and I bought a, a rimfly reel. Yeah. Hid it in the house <laughs> and built this rod. And then... Uh, what was the blank you used? And can you remember? I've still got it. I don't... There's no name on the blank. And he was 10 foot. And uh, it's very... T it feels like when you're holding it, it feels like there's a bit of lead on the tip. <laughs> you know, it's... Um, but I caught... I used that rod then, and I caught three fish the first day I went in uh, Eglis and the Reservoir, Port Albert. I haven't looked back since then. And, and I'd like to, I've always, always thought that the romance of it may be using it again, mm. all those years ago. But those early um, glass fibre rods <coughs> that we used in fly fishing, um, you, you didn't know any different. You thought they were fantastic. Yeah. And, I mean, I used to fish, when I moved up to Surrey, I fished Weirwood Reservoir over in Sussex. And I had a B. James Mark I. I mean, at the butt section, it was as thick as my thumb. Was it? But I thought it was wonderful. And, and then uh, that, uh, carbon I mean, came along then, didn't it? Yeah, and the chap who, who taught me to fly fish, I, you know, when I moved away, I can clearly remember writing to him because there was no phone then, there was no email, no nothing. Just wrote to him. And I said, Tony, I, I was fishing Weirwood last week and I had a rainbow of £1.12 ounces. And the letter came back saying, your scales must be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, a, a trout of a pound was something. And one pound twelve rainbow. And then gradually the whole thing changed, didn't it? Yeah. I remember a similar sort of thing. You know, I, um, I was catching them for a pound, pound and a quarter. And I remember the one day I had a two pound trout a rainbow trout and I brought it home and it's like now that's why everyone wants social media now to take a picture of themselves mm -hmm. the only thing we could do then was bring it home just to show yeah. everyone you know and I remember I can remember putting it on a plate on the cooker and just I looked I couldn't stop keeping my eyes off it just looking at it <laughs> and I couldn't wait the following morning to get up to just to look at it again you know wow but uh, but two pound and to think that people didn't even think about a two-pound trout now. No, I know. I mean, I, I so, so badly wanted to catch a two-pound brown trout. <clears throat> I'd, I'd never even seen one until I was 22-ish, I would guess. Yeah. And um, I really, really wanted to catch a two-pound brown. <clears throat> and uh, when I'd moved up here to Sur into Surrey, then I moved when I was 21, there was a couple of little old National Trust lakes near me and they stocked them with a hundred six-inch browns and rainbows once a year. And and I got my first two-pound brown in there. Wow. And, you know, if you got a take in a day, it was something. And um, I used to fish it, oddly enough, with a guy called Colin Harms. And Colin then went on from, the, from living there to create Dameram trout fishery. I was going to mention Dammerham to you, yeah. I never fished it. 
But I always used to remember looking at the back of Trout Fisherman, these little lads, Dan and there's always there, mm. you know. It was the first of the real, I suppose you'd call it, commercial day ticket waters. And Dan um, Blues. Yeah, that was subsequent to, to that, yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I got on front page of Anglin Times with a £7.4 rainbow. Monster in its day. From Dalmaham. Yeah. But you see, that was when Dick Walker used to fish it, um, Bill Sibbins, Terry Griffiths, Charles Jardine, Trevor Hosby, all the, the yeah. great names from the day. Yeah. <laughs> Trevor Hosby, I forgot that name. The dog nobbler. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he invented the nobbler, yeah. Yeah, all those waters. One of the the first ones I fished, the named waters, was Arvington. Mm -hmm. And uh, we camped, we, we were allowed to do it at the time, um, on the Itchen, uh, a school trip. And uh, it was like magical, you know, to, to go and see these pools, three pools. And uh, and this, the, the itching it goes alongside, isn't it? Yeah, the, yeah. the itching carrier goes goes yeah. through it. Yeah. Yeah, Roy Ward and Sam Holland, at the time then. Yeah, it was quite quite magic. I think it's still going, isn't it? Yeah, Arlington. I think it's still going. Yeah, I mean, Roy Roy sadly passed a long time ago, and so, of course, so did Sam before him. Right. But um, in fact, I've when Sam passed away, he wasn't living on the fishery then. He lived on a fish farm somewhere else. Um, Roy Roy told me what had happened, and <clears throat> and uh, he had to get Sam's guns out of the way from the home. And he said, you've, you've been after a rifle for a long time because him and I used to shoot a lot. And he said, Sam's um, 2-2 has got no with a gun merchant, but he said you could get it. And that's my, what I've got. I've Is still got really? his 2-2. Wow. And um, his son, Howard, um, is going to come up here some time to put a few rounds through his dad's gun. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> it's that sort of continuity thing yeah. in fishing, which I, I really like. How did you start off writing for the magazines? Oh, yeah, that was down, down to Avington, because um, I was there one day, and I'd written something about making a, a tandem lure for fishing at Queen Mother Reservoir. I'd started to fish there. And I, I wrote about it, and I put it into the mag, and they printed it. Just, you know, work how to put the link together to make a tandem lure. And John Wilshaw was at Avington that day. He was the first editor, wasn't he? I remember John Wilshaw, yeah. Yeah, and he said, um, have you got anything else? Went, well, no. <laughs> and he said, well, write me something. And that's what started it. You know, just a chance meeting. Donald Avington. Mm, yeah, no clear working plan behind it at all. And, and I mean, I, I'm not very smart at all. I don't, you know, I'm not a very clever guy at all, but I just found I could write. And in fact, um, it was John who, I caught a cheetah trout down there of 9.14, and John took the photo of it. And so it just went on from there. That's the good thing about... Um the magazines, well, it's changed now, but Trout Fisherman. You had credible names writing in the magazines, whereas now with social media, there could be hundreds of people online now telling people how to do things, you know? And it's just everyone seems to think there's a book in them or they, yeah. they need to tell. The instant the expert stuff, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I've got to set the scene while we're talking here as well now. We're in, in your cottage, in the kitchen, the most cosiest place going. 
and you're actually back and forth going to the store of making a, a chili con carne. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's fun, isn't it? And it's, oh, yeah, it I mean, that, If it tastes half as good as it smells, it's going to taste good. Ah, you've got to eat it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the loveliest things about living here is that we, we often have people in for a cup of tea or something and, and some biscuits and things. And, you know, the fishermen who, who come here, they just love that little extra bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it's been very nice. And my wife, Sue, she's a, she's a deer, really. And, um, you know, she, she just likes having the fishermen around. She's not really a fisher person herself, um, but she's been to Alaska five times with me. I see. And, um, you know, she can catch, but it's not really her. But she just loves the whole thing. I'm trying to think, when was the first time we actually did meet? And it's, it's one of two it is, and I think it was the first time we actually met. We did a feature down in White House Mill. Yeah, I can sort of, I remember the fishery. Yeah. What was the, the guy called who owned it? Was he, he was a Peter. Yeah, Peter Hunt. Was. Peter and Barbara Hunt. That's it, Peter Hunt. Yeah, I yeah. remember it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he passed away a good few years ago now. Really? Yeah, but she kept the fishery going. I don't know if it's still open now. He, he was a funny sort of character. He was one of these guys, he had a beautiful fishery, looked after it, put some quality fish in, but he didn't really want anybody to fish it, <laughs> you know. You, you can become very possessive about your fishery, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and I, can, I can see that because, you know, I ran a syndicate in Surrey for 34 years. I, I never fished it. But unless people treated it really, really well, I didn't yeah. like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so White House Mill it was that day. And I remember you actually, you actually had a big brown. No, there was another guy, a local angler. He had a big brown. I remember taking photographs of it on the day. It was a terrible day. It was raining. It was a mucky day. I do remember that. And then shortly after then, we went to Garnfrood. I remember that day. And, do you know, I, I, I knew I'd been to Garnfrood when I went there three, four years ago now. And I knew I'd been there before, well, and I just couldn't remember the circumstances. Yeah. So it was yeah. you, wonderful. Yeah. Wow. And then years went by, and then I happened to go to the 30th anniversary of uh, Trout Fisherman in Ratland Water. And uh, you were there then, and I, we went out for, for an hour or two on a boat. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, when you fish briefly for an hour or two, I think you did. You know, I I love the big waters like Rutland and stuff, but nowadays I don't get that many opportunities to do it. But um, I do love the big waters. That's yeah. my that's my bag. That is. It's I your thing, isn't waters, it? Yeah. yeah. Hey, are you all right with mashed potato and veggies with the chili? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You'll probably live, Kerry. Don't worry too much about it. <laughs> I mean, you. Obviously, you're, you're Welsh, I'm Cornish, we've we got Celtic orange. Kerry, tuck in while I've just put some for, for me. And um, But you you must have known Taff Price. Never met him. Didn't you? No, I never met him. No. Because he, he was a lovely guy. Because I used, I used to, I don't know how it happened, but I used to go over to, um, when Vineyards had a retail shop in Kent, I used to go over there every Saturday or sometimes other days in the week, and help with putting the orders together, and you know that's how I got to know Taff and John and all those guys really well. 
didn't he pass away recently? Last 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 year, Taft passed yeah. away. Yeah, me and Charles did the um, the speech for his at his funeral, and um, we did, well we did it jointly. You know, the two of us together. Yeah, and that that was a very very nice day. And they were filming it and sending it out live or something, so it meant I couldn't tell the story I wanted to tell about Taft because it was all in a. Yeah. Very posh church name, and things. Don't tuck in, please. Yes. We um, Taft took me to South Africa at some stage a long time ago now for a tour with the Federation of South African Fly Fishers and things. And um, we had a fantastic time. But as time went on, uh, the opportunity finally came to repay him when a guest who was going to go on a trip with me to Kodiak had to cancel at short notice but the trip all paid for and stuff, so I was able to phone Taff and say, do you want to come? All you've got to do is find your flight. So he came, and we fished steelhead and stuff. And one day we were walking up the river, and you had to follow the bear trails and then to where you want to fish with the, the guide and fish back. And um, partway on the trail, three big furry heads pop out the bushes in front of us, and the mother's woofing at us a bit, which is always a little disconcerting. And um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've seen a lot of bears, and they don't worry me so much now. But um, and anyway, they stood up, and if you wave your arms and shout, eventually they they get the message, and they wandered off. What the grizzlies? Mm. And Kodiak, the biggest grizzlies in the world. So I said to Taff, "Hey, God, that was good, wasn't it? Your first bear, you know?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "That was good." And he said, "Did you hear that noise?" I said, what, the mother woofing at us? He said, no, 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 that other noise. What noise? He said, like that. I said, I didn't hear that. What bloody hell was that? He said, that was my arse puckering. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I couldn't say that in church, could I? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, well. I've never seen them. I've been to... um, Sweden, and uh, I've seen black bear at a distance, um, and I've seen elk. Well, I mean, the difference between the two is that um, grizzlies can't climb trees, but black bears can. So you don't quite know what to do then, do you? Mm. Do you run or climb a tree? <laughs> yeah, well, I've been going to Alaska now for 35 years, and um, I've, I've seen a lot of bears, and I think I'm really at the stage I'd, I'd rather not see another one, thank you. Mm. One of the funniest things I seen last year was on the island, on Corrib, the guy I was fishing with at the time, Jimmy Terrell. And he sat down, started to make some lunch. And I turned my back on him, walking to the water, to the lake, to fill the kettle. Mm-hmm. Next thing, he could hear a big commotion and a shouting. I looked behind, and he was having a one-on-one with a big swan, and the swan, he was tumbling on the floor, and the swan was going for him, you know, proper fighting. God. And uh, so when I put the pictures up, because I thought I should have actually gone to help to break it up, but the photographer and me, I just grabbed my phone and started taking pictures. It was hilarious. (laughs) And then um, I put the pictures up on social media, and apparently, it's a well-known swan that goes around the islands when the oh, anglers really? are on the island wanting food and attacking them. <laughs> Not as bad as a bear, mind. So have you got any goals left? Because you've been to so many places now. 
question I can never really easily answer. Um, I've been lucky in fishing, Kerry. I've had some lovely fish and I've been to some great places. Um, you probably know that my, my great love is really to catch grayling. I prefer them to just about anything. And I had a, a long love affair with the Arctic grayling. I, I think I like smaller, prettier fish. I would dearly love to go and catch brook trout again one day. <clears throat> I think simply because they're just so beautiful. Um, but I guess it'll always be grayling that I really love. And I uh, see when I lived in Cornwall, there's a few grayling on the Tamar, but not a huge number. And we used to fish for them in the winter months. Uh, we trotted red worm and things. And I had a, a fish there in the upper reaches of pound seven one day. And that did it. Mm. So all I wanted to do was catch grayling after that. And it's been something that stuck with me. Will you do it now over the winter months? Yeah, I do a little bit on the chalk streams here, yeah. Um, it's just one of those things that a certain fish seems to get you, doesn't it? It's like you with the, the big brown trout that you like to chase. And it, it's something that just gets you as a passion. Yeah. The grayling, I have caught grayling. And I chat with the boys, friends of mine, they, they were, you know, obsessive, they were into it. And it's never really gripped me. But uh, I will have one or two days with them this year. Well, they don't get very big, they don't fight much, but they're just lovely. And it's hard to answer, you know, why you, you can like them. But I'm just walking over to a cabinet here. <clears throat> I've got a something here I made when I was at school, when I was 14. How did I know that grayling were going to be my great love? That I'd go and make a wooden grayling out of elm. Nice job, How could it? I have known? 14. <laughs> mm, that's creepy, isn't it? Nice job, too. Seeing that carved fish there now. In front of us now, on the wall, you've got a big rainbow. Mm -hmm. That was the first ever 20-pounder. That was um, 20 pounds, 7 ounces at Avington in 1986. British record. Rainbow trout. Peter Cockrell. Avington, Hampshire. The first of the 20s. And even now, a 20-pound rainbow is very, very big. It's hard to get them that size. You know, that was back in the, as you say, the Sam Holland, Roy Ward days, pre-triploid. Yeah, that would have been a hen then, yeah. What time of year was that? September. Usually those very big fish back then, they were what we used to call maiden fish. They were sort of like a natural triploid. They'd never actually come into egg condition. Um, so a bit of an odd boar type fish, which just, just grew. Have you got many fish cased? I did have. Um, there's a grayling over there which came from Great Bear Lake when I was doing my chase for a big Arctic grayling. That's um, £2.14. That was a 360 degree mount which Chris Elliott did. But I, over the years I had a lot of reproductions done of fish I caught up in Alaska and would bring the fish back or have it sent, sent over. So I, I did have quite a collection in my shop. Yeah, he did the big rainbow here for me. The first big fish I had done, I wanted to make it, to have it done by somebody who knew what they were doing. Because I, I thought, I'll never get one done again. And there's a, the name was Derek Frampton. I know that name, yeah. And he's, he's from just outside the M25, Kings Langley. And uh, I went to see him, and he's a professional taxidermist for the Museum of London. He is. Oh, wow. And uh, he was telling me the story that... There are, there are only three master taxidermists in the country. There's, there's different levels, mm -hmm. but there's only three, and he's one of them. 
and but he doesn't enjoy trout. He says he doesn't enjoy fish. He, his passion is birds. Right. And when you go into his house, you live in this big bungalow. And as you go to the hallway, there's a full-grown peacock. Oh. The feathers. He was like, incredible. And um, it's quite a story actually because he said when he was a boy, I did. How did it start with him? He said when he was a boy, he used to see like a sparrow or something beside the road, and he used to enjoy cutting it up. And I'm thinking, yeah, there's <laughs> something not quite right there. You know? <laughs> um, but it became into a passion. And so I thought to myself, right, he, so he did one trout for me. Two trout he's done, actually, for me. And at least I know then, in time to come, like Cooper is the name now, isn't it? Mm, yeah. So it'll be, you know, worth having it done. And if you're going to get it done, have it done. Like, he's got such a name he has, hasn't he? Yeah. Chris I mean, Elliott. I don't know what this big rainbow would fetch in its day. I mean, I've obviously got the record paperwork and everything, but I guess when I snuff it, Sue will make a few quid out of it. Mm. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a bone-fronted case. Yeah. So yeah. it cost a lot of money now yeah. to get that done. The thing is, I think over here, there's not really many collectors or a passion for them. I think Germany and the States are people who are into the attacks of Germany. Because I think there were fish in Blagden Lodge back a few years ago now. They disappeared. They were stolen, weren't they? Yeah. And there was talk then that they went to Germany. Oh, really? Yeah. I often wondered what happened to them. Because that was the original Rainbow Record, the £8, 8 ounce one, wasn't it? Could From Blagden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, if you had that in your home, how could you show it off to somebody knowing yeah, it's been stolen? It would have out, wouldn't it? Yeah. You can't do that sort of thing, can you? No. It was quite funny when I was closing the shop, you know, I'd got all these reproductions there of different fish, from mostly from Alaska and things. And um, I, I wasn't going to have anywhere to put them, so they had to go. And um, I gave a couple away. And then a chap I knew who <clears throat> I did a lot of corporates for, he said he'd have them all to put in his home. So great, you know, he, he, had, he took them all. And then... Um, it turned out this was a gentleman who then bought Deaver Springs. So his big house here on, on Deaver, he wanted all those fish in his house that's here. So all those fish that I'd got rid of, all of a sudden, I'm back living with them again. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed there's one just above the kettle there, if I remember right, when I walk at the lodge. Huge. Yeah, that's, what is that? that's a king salmon Chinook Yeah, that I caught up in Alaska. I mean, I got lucky with that one because it's hard to find the really big kings now. Um, they don't seem to be doing quite so well. You estimate the size of those fish then? That's yeah, it. you do it on length and girth. Mm. You know, um, there's a formula, isn't there? Length times girth squared divided by 800 gets you pretty close to the weight. And so that one was 51 by 34, and it comes out around 70-odd pound. So that was 70, was it? Mm. Wow. And I, over the years, I'd, I'd hooked a few around the sort of 50-plus mark and lost every one. Was that um, on a double-hander? No, no, single-handed rods. But that one behaved itself, and we got it. Took the length and girth and everything and put it back again. But actually, the guy who took the photos of it um, is now a really serious contributor to Trout, Trout and Salmon. Um, it's Don Staziker. He was on the trip with us. Did you know that fish was in the... The run of the pool, or just oh yeah, blind. yeah, it's very very clear the river, and we, we'd been watching it for a couple of hours, 
and um, and fishing hard for it. And then uh, at one stage, I I just saw it lift and smack its mouth, and I thought, oh God, that's got to be me, and it was. <laughs> so what 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 sort of water was it like? Was it fast flowing? Or it's fast, yeah, yeah, using a three hundred grain sink tip. To keep get the fly down. It's quite deep as well, was it? Not necessarily, but um, probably probably about eight or nine feet where he was. But the kings like to sit in heavy water, so you got to get the fly down. They they don't oh, lift right. up for the fly. You've got to put it in their face. And what did you catch it on? A fly my daughter made for me. Really? Yeah. Um. She she got quite good at fly tying and typical of a like a. 13 14 year old girl would make it was it was pink purple and blue then i just put it on and bang the fish took it <laughs> she got a box full of them no <laughs> <laughs> we did use it a lot for years yeah it was she's called fiona and it got called the fonzie fly <laughs> mm. so you never know dear i bet it must have been the adrenaline seeing it before you cook it or something yeah, it's one of those things you don't think it's actually going to happen and then playing it you think, we're never going to get this. And at one stage it came into the shallows, it was nothing to do with me. It just happened to do that. And I said to my young uh, guide, David, I said, um, I reckon if I run below it and put on enormous side strain, I think I'll turn it over in the shallows. And I said, you're going to have one chance to grab the tail. Get it wrong and you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly we'd got it. What sort of breaking stream? Oh, you only fish twenty pound tippet because you know if you want to, if you've got to break, you want the leader to go, not the line. So and you you can't pull that sort of poundage anyway, can you on an ordinary fly rod? Was it a ten foot rod? No, just a nine foot nine weight. Really? Mm. But if you link it up, a rod like that carry to a spring balance, and just see what you can pull on it. It's not very much. Going on to your back to your writing, because you've written a few books. Is it seven books you've written? Mm, I know, yeah. What was the first one you did? Oh, it was called Big Trout Fishing, which was a terribly long time ago. And then I did that in conjunction with Roy Westwood when he was editor of Angler's Mail for many, many years. And I was doing a trout column in, in Angler's Mail, and um, for whatever reasons we decided to do that book, and you look back at it now and you think, ooch, did I really write that? <laughs> You had the bug then, you went to write another one. Yeah, yeah, and I did a fly tying book and yeah, all sorts of stuff, really. What was the last one you did? Uh, the last book was um, just an update on the whole small fishery thing. Um, so it's just bang up to date. Just That came out this year. And that's the one I'm most pleased with, I think. It was published down in Cornwall and printed in Cornwall. So it's a Cornish collaboration, really. What's involved with doing a book then? Do you publish it yourself? I did this Or the one, design, yeah. the artwork, how does it work? No, I did this one myself, and um, previously I'd done it through publishers or whatever. And years and years ago, it, you'd get quite a nice fee for it. It'd be in three stages, one on signing, one on delivery, and then one on publication. And then that gradually went down over the years until you were just getting like a, a royalty fee per book. And um, it ended up, I thought, this ain't worth it anymore. So that's why I thought I'd do it myself. They are the ones that are going to make money, I guess. The publishers, really. Yeah. Uh, but the publisher down in Cornwall, the young lad who did all the work for me on the book, um, he was a fisherman and, you know, it was great. He was just so good. 
and he made a fantastic job of it. So I was really pleased with that. I'll have to see that one. Yeah, I got a, I got a feeling there's one more book in me, and um, I'm going to call it "The Fish, People, and Places." You've already got the idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've written about uh, twenty thousand words so far. But I thought, you know, I've met so many people like you and that over the years that and been to lots of wonderful places. If you don't write it, it's gone. You know, you, you've, you've written many times about your hunt for the big browns in Corrib and stuff, but you really need to get it all down in the... Well, I've, um, I've written about it and I've done two podcasts on it, but I don't give everything away. <laughs> it's, um, it's something I'm quite protective about because it all started for me when I, I was going to Ireland fly fishing for like years and years maybe for 20 years and all of a sudden this one day there was a local angler they had one 20 pounds and he was in the pub it was they brought it in and that was the old record 21 pounds and when you see it it changed me I thought I gotta get one I've got to get one not necessarily a 20 but I wanted a big trout and then it, from that moment on then, I think it was 2002, it became a total obsession in the true sense of the word. I would literally, every chance I'd get, if it's a 10-day trip, a week, three weeks, I'd be over in Ireland. I got my own boat there. I'd be there some mornings, 4 o'clock in the morning, on the lake, more often than not, around about 11. And I'd be there until dark, half past 10, 11 o'clock, maybe later, Every day I was there, whether or not it was wind, rain, hail, snow, whatever, relentlessness, there's, there's a saying, relentlessness gets rewards. And there's not really anything written about the pharaohs, how to catch them. There is one, Ron Greer. I yeah, think. Ron Greer did it, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. But it's, it's not relevant at all to anything in Corrib and how to catch them, where they feed and when they feed and the depths. There's so much involved there. And what I've learned... In the early days, I was getting them sort of like eight to ten pounds, getting quite a few, eight to ten pounds. And I was sneakily going up to about 12, 13 pounds, and I'd stopped. Couldn't get one anything bigger. So I changed everything, start from scratch. scratch. There's different techniques, different methods, different mounts, different times of the year, different areas. And then I latched on where these bigger fish are. And there is a different method to catching 14-pound trout and a 10-pound trout. Was it habitat or, or technique because you're dealing with an older fish? Um, it's, the main thing is the mount, the way the, the roach is fishing. Right. That's the main thing. That's the key thing. Um, so many people, you tell them, oh, I had a 10-pound trout, and they think, oh, you wanted trawling. A lot of people think, Oh, anyone can open a trawl, right? I have fished the highest level fly fishing competitively and I know what it takes. And I know also what it takes to catch a double-figure brown trout. And it's not easy, so there's a case of putting a roach at the back. If I wanted to take you out now and catch a 12-pound trout, within a day or two, I'd get one. Not every day, but I would get one. By fishing a certain mount and a certain size roach. And then I got bored with doing that, so I wanted a high teen. So the only way to catch a fish a high teen is there's a certain mount which you've devised. And, but the key thing is, 
the number one key thing, which it, it's the number one thing. Big fish come in big weather. When I go there, like you, when you go anywhere for a for a trip, maybe go for a week, no matter what the weather is, because you're there, you fish anyway. Mm-hmm. If you're living there, oh, you won't do it today. Pick a good day, yeah, yeah. for you. <laughs> no, the times I've gone out there, right, waves much bigger than this room, you know, and you're in the troughs and the rods are bouncing and you wouldn't, any sane man, you're not going to do it. Like four mile out in the lake, it's like being in the sea, honestly. Oh. And then when that rod goes around then, you know it's going to be big. But when, you, when I was saying to catch the big fish, you might get one fish take a fortnight because there's not many fish you're going to take a roach that size. Mm. You do get pike. You do get pike. But uh, it is just, just... So big weather, bigger the better. Scary weather. What it does to them, I don't know. They're up and about. There's more oxygen in the waves, perhaps, and they get hungry, they get turned on. And maybe because you fished days on end and weeks on end at different places, and there is a way I find when I go to, say, the Carib, it takes me three days to get into the zone, you know, and it's not just a case of going out first day, right, we'll catch a fish, sort of thing. It t- your metabolism is different. You become part of the lake. There's times then, there's a take-in moment. One, I've lived on the lake, you know, for like two, three weeks at the time. And I've been on the lake. There's a light in the air. And the water turns, the best I can describe, like a mercury to it, right? And there's the warmth and the, everything comes together. Mm. And you think, it's good, right, it'll, it'll last under a minute. And I've done it so many times, and I've been switched on then, right? I've maybe knocked the engine off, gone in the oars, next thing, uh, you're in. Wow. And, and another thing which have happened, on three occasions this have happened, where I'm on the lake, and then there's been another friend of mine, he's fishing four miles away, and then that moment happens, and you hook a fish. My mobile's gone, Paul, he said, I just had a fish. Uh. And it's it's all over the lake. It's something to do with pressure, um, some something we don't understand, but the light, as well, you know. And um, but going back to putting it all down in a book, maybe one day, I will. But uh, yeah, I mean, do it so that it isn't lost, but yeah. maybe not make it public yet. Yeah, at least get it down. Because yeah. you, 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 you've done such an incredible thing that you don't want that information lost. No. It's part of fishing's heritage, what you achieved. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, it's nice But I, I like your thought there, or your views there, because I always say if you want a big brown, the dirtier the weather, the better. Even on these small waters. Yeah. Like like here at Dever. And if, if somebody gets a, one of the, shall we call them, semi-resident browns, it's usually on a pretty shitty day particularly late in the day. And there's, yeah. there's something about the light, as you say, the, the atmosphere, the pressure, whatever it is. You do come in tune to it when you do it all the time. Yeah, you get an affinity yourself with it, don't you? You just think, uh-oh, yeah. today's the day. I have vouchers available to spend on my online shop. The sign prints, ghillie kettles, and other accessories or for one of my guiding tuition packages. Plus now taking bookings for my Corrib Farrax days 
for next season. Also, don't forget to order Peter's new book, An Ideal Christmas Present. The Patreon members this month gets the opportunity to win a copy in this week's competition. So take this opportunity to sign up to my Patreon page. You know, one of the things I like doing now is I like to fly fish for carp, um, which I get a lot of fun out of. And, you know, they're commercial fisheries and all the rest of it. But this week, I'd been watching the weather because it's awful late in the year for carp on the fly. And um, Monday, this last this past week, was going to come out dead flat with no rain and very warm. The last of the warm November days, I thought... It's Monday. I'm going to go. And I had a 28-pounder on fly. Did you? It's my biggest, you know, but it just was right that day. Mm. And I'd, I'd been watching that little weather window and thinking, i got to go. <laughs> and it worked. A mirror? Uh, common. Yeah, lo- lovely common, common, yeah. I mean, I know they're commercial carp waters and all the rest of it, and... You know, you're catching them on a pellet imitation on the top and stuff. But, hey, it's fun. Good fun, yeah. There's a, a fishery near me. It used to be a trout fishery called Canada Lake. Oh, I've heard of this one a lot, yeah. Yeah, and it's the guys which own it, um, they, they made it into a wedding venue now. Mm-hmm. So there's carp in there. There's always been carp in there. But over the years, since they've been doing the weddings, at the end of the day, any food which was left... Goes in the lake. <laughs> wow! Right? I mean, there's a lot of a lot of voulevards going in that <laughs> lake, and um, you know, it's a big turnover. There's there's a lot of weddings. You'll have thirty weddings in a, on a, in a month, and um, so they they have anglers, um, just carp anglers going there fishing. But there's one guy he fishes here, Jason. Jason. Yeah, yeah. He's he's living there almost. And I know. He's, and we talk a lot about it. He had the thirty eight, didn't he? Yeah, he's which is as far as I know, is the biggest fly caught carp in this country. Yeah, but they are. They just they just fed on cakes and wow. stuff, you know. <laughs> but it's good fun. I've done it with him actually, and I've, as you said, there's there's a space for it. You know, people enjoy doing it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for well over twenty years, and. Um, I love it, and it really winds up the boily boys. Yeah. So it's even better. <laughs> they could be all camped up with three rods, and they'll have one fish for a session, and Jason will go and have about 12 in an oh, hour. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they don't like it. That's, no. They get it banned on a lot of carp waters. Is it? Yeah, but okay, that's all right. That was lovely, the chili con carne. Good, thank you. Thank you. So this is your latest book here mm-hmm. now, yeah? Yep. If you look on the spine of the book, there's a Cornish flag at the bottom. See? All Cornish. The Cross of St. David well, as well. It's the it? flag of St. Pyrrhon, actually. Is it? <laughs> I think we That's stole patron, it. That's the patron saint of Cornwall is St. Pyrrhon. It's just everything, a complete update on the types of fish, the, the gear, what to do to get started, the flies, the knots and tactics, and even a little bit of other species at the end, carp and pike and stuff like that. It's a nice feel to it. I like the design as well, like you said, the sky. It's, it's he, just he it beautifully done, things, yeah, I'm it? really pleased with it, yeah. Have you got a website? Uh, not anymore, no, I used to have when I had the shop. Um, yeah. So now it's been gone mostly through Facebook and stuff. Um, Sportfish are going to take it on. Um, a few other fisheries have got it and things. I just need to get it moving a bit more. So you've already, you, you've had them printed? 
Oh, yes, I've got them all, yeah. yeah. If the ceiling gives way on us, um, we'll be buried <laughs> under books. <laughs> I bet if there's seven books up there. It's nice tail end of the book. It's nice touch, that. No. That's a tail from a, a rainbow on Strobel in Argentina where I go. Is it? Where they got that the silvering boom. right through the tail. What's that moment like when you've gone through it a few times and no doubt you think, oh, there's something I could change in it. Do you think, well, that's it now? You've got to sort of say, yeah, because things yeah. do keep changing in fishing. But you have to say, I've covered it. It's there. I don't want to really go through it all again. It's, 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 that's going to have to be it. I tell you, there was a few people I've met over the years who have impressed me the writing. But one guy I thought was really good was Chris Dawn. Yeah. He did have a way with words. He was an easy writer, wasn't he? And he yeah. could just string it together. Dear old Chris, I miss him. Yeah. A little bit odd in his many ways, but... <laughs> <laughs> he was, yeah. But did did he catch a a, a big brown over there with you, with you? Yeah, nine-pound ferox. I thought he did, because the photo of it was on his coffin. Yeah, that's right. I took that. Yeah, I wondered if it was with you. Yeah. Nine and a half pound it was. Yeah, he did. And I was told after, because I didn't go to the funeral... I think it was Russell who was telling me that uh, his photograph yeah, was Yeah, it was. It was right there, yeah. I, I fished and met with uh, some names over the years, but one person I missed an opportunity, and that was Bernard Venables. Yeah, I never, never got lucky to meet him. Yeah. yeah. And uh, because I've got a couple of his Fishing with Mr Crabtree books. Wow. I got two original ones, the first first editions. And uh, I remember being brought up with them, looking at the, the stories and the father and son, was it Peter? Mm, Peter, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, your mind was lost in this, you know, these little um, storyboards. And I went then, years later, to, um, it was a Welsh water presentation promoting whales fishing something. And who was there that day was... Um, been a Venables. Wow. And I was thinking, damn, I wish I had my book now for him just to sign it, you know? Go, yeah. But he didn't, um, he didn't last long after that. Hmm. And just one of those things, you know, you make the... Uh... I think sometimes you don't quite realise who you're with in terms of the fishing greats, you know, like meeting up with Dick Walker in the early days of Demerum. You know, the, the when the the patterns were evolving, weren't they, for the small fisheries? Walkers may fly them. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, various flies and things. And, you know, again, I look through my diaries from there and there's a picture of me with a four and a quarter pound rainbow. And, it, and the caption says, it'll be a long time before I better this. Because that was a big fish in its yeah. day. And, you know, people think of this mythology of the, the great days of Avington and stuff, but... And they were fantastic early days, but again, you look in my, my diaries and that there, the average weight was two and a quarter pound, and think, there weren't that many giant yeah. fish. Because I thought, I thought the bubble had burst for these big rainbows many years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago or more, but it's, they still seem to be It's market, still there. People want to catch a big fish, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is interesting how, you know, a place like this here, Deaver Springs, can be very, very busy with people wanting to catch these nice big fish. And um, Tim Small at Letchlade with his very large fish. Um, Nigel Jackson up the road here with um, 
uh, Tushwood Fishery where there's, you know, if you want to catch a double, that's the place to go because there's nothing smaller than a double in there. So, okay, you're going to catch a big one. But um, it's interesting that you and I have been more with wild fish. Yeah. Um, although I, I'm very happy fishing stocked large fish. I, I don't have a problem with it. I enjoy it. Um, <clears throat> and it's what I've written about for many, many years. Although I think the wild fish was always going to be a thing. Um, and I always admire what you did chasing those big browns. I'd, I'd never have the time or the resources to do it. But I suppose my passion, you <coughs> see, went, went into the grayling because when I caught my first Arctic grayling, I just thought how beautiful it was. They're much prettier than the European grayling. And, uh, and as time went on, I wanted to catch a big one. And to me, a, a three-pound grayling is enormous. Yes. I mean, I've never caught an English one that size. I've had a, I did a two fifteen on a feature day with Pete Gathercole. <laughs> that's the way. Country. That's the way to catch a big grayling. And, it, um, over this country. Hmm? In this country. Yeah, on the Itchin that was, and that's my biggest um, European grayling, English grayling. But I wanted a big Arctic, and I fished a lot of places, and I heard amazing stories, and gradually, gradually found i wasn't finding out any real truth and then i i looked up the international game fish association for all the different world records and they do it in spinning or bait and fly two different categories and then they do it on tippet class breaking strain of the leader and stuff and most of those records came from great bear lake in the northwest territories for grayling so i thought it's got to be great bear so some friends funded me. In a lake, me. no? Hmm? In a lake. In a lake, yeah. So some friends funded me a trip there. And Great Bear Lake is ninth largest lake in the world. It's gigantic. People go there to fish for lake trout, the type of the char, hmm. and they're huge there. But um, the grayling are absolutely beautiful because the lake is dead clear, and they're really, really pretty. And we caught fantastic grayling up to about 214, like the one in the case over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but couldn't crack three pound. And yet the guys who went and using spinners and stuff, they'd catch some grayling for shore lunch. And they'd always have a couple of four pounders. And I thought, oh, how the hell does this happen then? And then we heard somebody brought in a four pounder and they were going to have it mounted. So we went down to the freezer room and admired this two and a half pounder, which apparently was four pounds. Mm-hmm. And so you think, uh, huh? Yeah. And then I found I got all the pictures from IGFA of the different line class records. And I thought, oh, well, that's how it's done, is it? Okay. And began to realise there's rather a lot of hocus pocus going on here. Yeah. Um, and I really, really wanted a big one. I did Great Bear Lake for 10 years. And we got up to, finally up to £3.6. And fantastic fish, you know, wonderful fish. But by then, I'd got to meet a guy called, um, <clears throat> I think the chili's got my throat. <laughs> I met, met a guy called Fred DeCiso, who'd been a fishing game biologist for Alaska for many years. And he spent his life researching char and grayling. And he said, if you want to catch a big Arctic, you're going to have to go somewhere where man doesn't go. Because you're looking for a 30-year-old fish. 30? 30. So three pound Arctic <coughs> grayling 
could be 30 years old. A four-pounder would be, yeah. And he proved it. <clears throat> because our grayling here, European grayling, don't go much over eight years or so. <clears throat> but Fred was um, going to all these re- remote streams in Alaska in his work for the fish and game department. And he'd, he'd catch grayling and, and take some scales and tag the fish and pop them back in and read the scales and stuff. And they were uh, 18, 19 inch fish was um, was showing 12 to 13 years on scales. And he catch the same fish three or four years later in these streams, take some scales, do it again. 12 to 13 years, but that's actually three or four years later, but showing the same age. So that's when he thought, something's not right here. Yeah. So he then started to catch these fish, and he'd inject the fish with a, bone, a dye that goes in the bone growth of that year. It's a proven scientific thing on bone growth. <coughs> and... Um, catch the same fish three, four years later, and this time tap it on the head and take out the utilith bone from the vestigial ear bone in the head. Right. And that is like a tree trunk, exactly. So he'd slice it, it's a tiny little thing, and there, three to four years back, was the die mark for when he'd injected that fish. So he'd then count all the rings back so fish which were showing 12 to 13 years on scales were actually well over 20. Wow. And he'd got the head of one four-pounder in his freezer, the only four-pounder he'd ever caught. And he took the ear bone out of that one, and it was 31 years. So where would you catch those then? He said you just got to go to really remote places where man doesn't much go. And that would be in a lake, though? Oh, no, they... Uh, could be rivers or lakes, but um, the Canadian ones tend to really love the lakes, but um, the Alaskan ones are more rivers, and they're yeah. highly migratory. They, they go from the mouth of the river in the spring where they spawn to the headwaters, often 90 miles away. 90 and, miles? Yes, and he's you know, proved it all. Because the river I normally go to, the guides and stuff tell me that when they open the river to set up camp in June, they catch really big grayling around the camp and stuff. And when I get there in July, there aren't any big grayling. They're gone. Because they're now 90 miles up river. Would you fish this method now where everyone seems to be fishing now, the um, uh, Euro Nymphin, French leader? I've done that here, yeah. I haven't done it um, in Alaska. Yeah. I, frankly, haven't needed to. Yeah. But um, so, so if in the end, what Fred said was, probably you ought to look at the gnome area right up on the Bering Straits, because there's no trout up there. It's too far north for rainbows. The salmon aren't anything special, so nobody really bothers with them. There's a lot of char, but the grayling appear to only spawn about every eight to ten years, and there aren't any little ones. So I've got a wonderful friend in Colorado who funds me trips. He seems, seems to like me, I don't know why. And uh, <laughs> we went there for three years and Fred guided us and it was a helicopter flight into the river, inflatable kayaks, drift down river, camp overnight for a week, different places and then get picked up by the helicopter. Yeah. And we had fantastic grayling. It was hard to catch one under two pounds. And we had loads of threes. Proper wild, isn't it? Unbelievable country. Yeah. And the second year I had a £4.6. <coughs> so we thought, done it. £4.6. £4.6. Done it. Line class record, that'll do. 
and we went the third year and we really took a gamble and went very late in the year thinking the fish might be bigger because of the salmon eggs and all the rest of it and got really lucky with the weather and it's interesting you'd you'd only catch a grayling per 100 yards of river and sometimes you'd find a little bunch of them and um that particular day my friend Lou had a four pound six on a dry he only ever fished dry fly fished a renegade dry and I, I'd happily fish a nymph and and I had a four two then Lou got another four pounder and we're sort of over the moon and then I did it and I had a five pound one wow and um you got photographs of these hmm? have you got have you actually got photographs I've got of a these? model of it as well and um, oh, yeah. so I stopped fishing. I mean, I, I cried my eyes out when I caught that, Kerry. You know, yeah. I'd done everything I could ever want to do. And um, so I spent my day spotting for, for my friend Lou. And he ended up with eight four-pounders on dry. Nobody will ever, ever do that again. Yeah. And you can't get there anymore. The native people's close the river. So you can't get there. Um, so yeah, we did it. <laughs> that, that that sort of trip is a trip of a lifetime, isn't it? I love this remoteness mm. of it all. Um, the closest I've done to anything like that, I've I've been up to the north of Sweden a few times, uh, and there's this one guy, uh, the guide I was with, his name was Per Eriksson, and uh, he was like about six foot ten. He made Grizzly Adams look like an office boy. <laughs> if you saw a bear, you'd want to be with him. Wow. And, uh, and very dry, you know, speaking like this. And uh, we had a helicopter up into the mountains, hovering in. Uh, and we rode across a lake onto this cabin then. And uh, it was quite unnerving, actually, the remoteness of it. Because we were there for three days and that's it. Uh, there's nobody there, is there? No. No. And there's no birds, which is deathly silent. Uh, it was strange. Okay. And, uh, but anyway, I, I had a, a most amazing trip, a memorable trip. Um, but each day we, we were out and he was cooking, say cooking lunch, he'd have elk, reindeer, berries. And, uh, and he would give me a can of lager and he would have orange juice every day. So on the third day, uh, I thought, why isn't he drinking? So I said, Per, how come you're not drinking the, the lager? He says, I do not drink alcohol. I said, all right, any reason for that? And he says, uh, too many female hormones in alcohol. What? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, how do you work that out? Wait till the boys back home hear about this. I said, how do you work that out? Start talking shit and can't drive. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from him, so dry, I rolled on wow. the floor. But, uh, and he had like a half a grin then as well, you know. <laughs> but um, the remoteness is great. I love the remote countries. I suppose that's why I love Alaska so much. Yeah. You know, there's nobody there. In a lot of places, Great Great Bear, where I used to fish with my friend Lou, we we were the only people who would ever fish off the shore, because everybody's out trolling for lake trout, and the grayling around the shore, 
And um, so we, I mean, the only people who ever, ever fished off the shoreline. Um, I always remember the day we were fishing together and um, and I said to Lou, I said, Lou, there isn't a sound like you were saying, no bird song, nothing. And um, a little while later, I said it again. I said, Lou, there isn't a sound. He said, yes, there is. It's your bloody constant yapping. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Next year, I'm going out to Kodiak again, which I love to fish for steelhead. Um, and it's in an unbelievably remote camp we go to. How many and, days would you have there then? Pardon me? How many days would you have there then? It's a, a week's fishing. Um, so it really, really is remote. There is no one there, just you and the guides. And a cabin? Or it's, it's tented camp. Oh. Yeah, it really is remote. Oh, that would be right up my street. Yeah, I, that I mean, I love it. And and I'm very, very happy there. And I, you know, I, to much to the guides concern i'm i tend to wander off on my own <laughs> yeah. um but it doesn't worry me i'm really happy to photograph something like that the whole trip would be something oh you'd, you'd love it from the yeah. photographer side of things i find sometimes i'm torn when i go fishing sometimes i've got the camera one side on my head and a rod the other side mm-hmm. thinking you know what do i do like you know but, yeah um, i mean you you we mentioned earlier about pete gathercole that you know who's you know I've worked with him for 30-odd years. That's why I miss the feature days and stuff. But some days we'd be out on a on a job, say, and maybe it wasn't working too well. But then we'd sort of look at each other and go, it's now, isn't it? And we'd know that, A, we were going to catch a fish, but also it was right for him with the camera. Yeah. And somehow you have that affinity of feeling, don't you, that you sort of know what's going to yeah. happen. It's going to ha- It's going to be now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's creepy, like you were saying about the you know on the wild water and the light changing and think. Yeah. It's going to be now. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, you, you can feel it, can't you? There was a time I fished in County Kerry with Chris Dawn once, the Upper Lake in Killarney, and it's steep side mountains all the way around. And um, I remember we were fishing, drifting, having lovely little trout, beautiful. And then we were just looking around, taking it all in, and it was breath, breathtaking. And then I stopped fishing, and he said, he said what's, what's the matter? I said, look at it. And the way the wind was blowing, the clouds and the sun, it was, you can imagine painting the, the mountains all mm. around. And I said, you can actually feel music emanating from the land. You can almost hear music, and wow. uh, it's almost like I can tell where Enya get her inspiration from. Yeah, yeah. And then I can remember him sitting there. He's going, "Blood, yeah," he said, <laughs> "As we was, you know." And he mentioned that in the uh, oh, wow. in the article. Then, but sometimes people don't take notice of what's around. They're just no, they thinking in front of that no. line. No, you I mean know? the guides sometimes say to me in Alaska, "You know, are you you all right, Pete?" Yeah. But you haven't been fishing for an hour. I said, "No, it's all right. I'm just watching the fish, and I'm yeah. okay." Yeah, yeah. And I, I like doing that, just seeing yeah. what's going on. 
Yeah. And, but you're, you're right that people don't see stuff because when I'm guiding or teaching and stuff, it's so common to see a particular bird or sight or see a fish or something and you point it out to the client and they don't see it until you really, really point it out because they don't have that affinity with nature, shall we call it, and they yeah. just don't see stuff. I think we've been probably very, very lucky, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think we've seen the best of it. I f rather feel the same. Yeah, yeah. I really do. <laughs> yeah. Like how many people would get a buzz now of catching a pound trout? Mm. Not many people. There's, there's a book, you've probably got, got it here. Uh, it's called Master in the Nymph by Gordon Fraser. Yeah. I think it's that book. And at the front, the foreword, it says, when you start to fish, you want to catch a fish. Mm-hmm. When you've done that, you want to catch the most fish. When you've done that, you want to catch the biggest fish. And when you've done that, there's only one thing left, to catch the hardest fish. And it's like, you, you look back and there's a cycle, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you've done so much, but now you get so much pleasure just catching a wild fish. Yeah, I, I often think there's another little classification in that one. Yeah. It's being with someone else and seeing them catch it and being able to put that knowledge of yours through to them to let them succeed. I really, really like that side of things now. I'm not, I mean, I know I can catch that, catch that fish and I'm, I'm not too bothered, but if, if I can help someone else to catch it, I absolutely love that. It's funny, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 I can see that. It's the different stages you go through. Yeah. But I, I, I do agree with you about the wild fish. Um, I've got this thing that I've, I've got to go back on one of the trips down to Cornwall and, and fish the streams where I learned all my fishing, just to remember each pool and, and just catch those gorgeous little fish again. <clears throat> and Colliford, I've got to do that one. <laughs> Definitely. We'll have to have a day down there. Definitely next year, no? This is what I call my, my, my war cabinet. Lovely. It's the books. Oh, that's right. I remember now. You didn't your reels, weren't you? Oh, God, the Abel reels. Yeah, I mean, I'm so sad. Look, I had this one made in the colours of an Arctic Grayling's dorsal. Wow. I mean, well, how you pathetic had, you had it made? Hmm? Yeah, it they made. made ten of it for me. <laughs> but all the sort of things you collect and all, all sorts of weird things. and um, What's the certificate there? That's the world record certificate. Oh, no, that's the one from Alaska for the, the Alaska state record. Um, right. But, I mean, th this is a little grayling made from walrus ivory. Wow. And I've, I've got another one made from mammoth ivory. Just just little things. But yeah. a couple of years ago, I did a thing for the Grayling Society presentation. They wanted to raise some money for something. So I got one of these walrus ones, and I put it in a special little box and everything and I put a label on it and everything it said Arctic grayling carved from walrus ivory by native Yupik from the village of Quinnahawk, Alaska you know all yeah, look good. I yeah. couldn't put the chap's name down there why is that? he's called John Smith is this really? took the magic away didn't it? <laughs> I can see your love for grayling. Right? Oh, Look at that. yeah. There you 
The, the, the one of the, a guy that made this in Alaska one evening. In, he made it he in one made evening. it in one evening. Is Spectacular. How do you is, do that? I like that a lot. I said it's mine. <laughs> yeah, we made it. He just sat there with pliers. <laughs> he did and just made it one made evening. The wire. Yeah, creepy things. So this is a collection of your books as well, then, yeah? Yeah, all the different ones over the years, yeah. I mean, me and Gary did the first video, um, Fly Fishing in Clear Waters, me and Gary, with Taff, Taff Price, me and Gary Brooker. It was the yes. first of the videos that were ever done. Dear old Gary. When he, when he died, his wife asked me if I'd speak at the funeral. And... Okay, all right, but you know, there's going to be some amazing rock stars there because of what he is. So I, I managed to. He's the, he did the White the Shade of Pale, he wrote it, yeah? Yeah, wrote, wrote it and sang it, yeah. yeah. And um, so I, I did my little bit and I told a story about him and stuff, and people loved it. And then Eric Clapton got up and with a guy called Andy Fairweather Lowe, yeah, yeah. and they played a few ditties. And then Eric sang Tears from Heaven, the one he wrote about his boy when he fell out the apartment in oh, New York. Oh, yeah, yeah, remember that. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. If I'd had to follow him, I'd never have done it. Wow. <laughs> wow. I noticed you've got uh, a Jim Teeny fly box. Oh, yeah, well, Jim's been a great, great friend for such a long time. I tell you who's doing well for himself, he's gone to America, it's Davey Wooden. Yeah, he's, he's done well, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah he, he just um, made a comment today on my Facebook about the carp I caught the other day. We, we still keep in touch. It's his birthday today, fair enough. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because we used to meet yeah. in Vineyards days. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember going to his house in Cumbran, Mono Court, right up the top of this council estate. And uh, this is a long, long time ago. I remember going into his house, his flight time room, was all sweet jars. The wall of sweet jars, you know, like a sweet shop with all the materials in. Oh, wow. And in the kitchen then um, was, it was a, a pot. You couldn't put your arm around it. Big, deep pot with a big wooden spoon. And I was looking at it. I said, what, what was this? What's that then? He said, have a look, he said. So I went over and it, it was black gunge it was. But cut long story short, that was the very first SLF. Uh. He made, he, he used to buy this yarn, dye it, and he'd have girls then to cut it up. And that's where Good SLF started. Lord. I mean, yeah, that was, he's, he's very innovative, no doubt about that. Yeah. We've got a lovely collection, eh? Walk this way. You have to be just careful coming past here. She likes her stuff. Oh, this is your tying room. That's the model I had made of the Grayling. Wow. That's how big that a fin. That's how big a five pound Grayling is. <laughs> and you, th th that's more or less the measurements and everything. Yeah, it's dead on for the measurements, yeah. I've got to make a new case and have it downstairs. It shouldn't be up here out of, out of no, sight. No, no. It used to be in the shop, you know, where lots of people saw it, obviously. Yeah, but okay. What I was just going to say, look at the mouth, Kerry. All right. Yeah. Now, the mouth of a, the grayling you're used to is like this. Yes. It's an overbite, isn't it? Yeah. Arctics aren't. They're the other way around. It's almost red, like. Yeah. 
but they're highly predatory, those things. I've caught them on mice, almost as big as the fish itself, and um, they're just highly predatory. I love that. And you think, you stupid thing, you're so beautiful, you should be taking little dry flies. Not Ooh. a fucking great lure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to speak more. We've had a most gorgeous meal while we've been chatting as well. But I think there's another podcast in time. Plus, we'll I'll come down again and then chat more about Diva Springs. I'm mm -hmm. going to be small waters and I look back on the other waters which you fished. Before I actually wrap up and get my cameras here, I'm going to get my lighting as well, I guess, some of those photographs of me to go over this. There's one question I ask everyone to finish off. But where would you want to be to make your last cast? Ooh, there's a good one. <laughs> to make my last cast, oh my goodness. <laughs> I suppose it's going to have to be home in Cornwall because that's and Cornish and that's it. So yeah, down there I guess. But it's interesting because Sue and I have um, spoken about the end of days because I'm getting to be an old git these days. And I said, you know, I just want to be cremated and that's the end of it. And I'd, I'd often said that I'd like my ashes scattered on my favourite water on the basis that if I, I can catch them when I'm alive, at least I can choke the little bastards when I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> but she then said, well, he should, she said, well, okay, then, so I'll sprinkle your ashes on your favourite waters. So it'll be somewhere that's really sunny, like Florida, the Seychelles. <laughs> I said, that's not my favourite places. <laughs> but she said, well, it will be. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the last cast is going to have to be in Cornwall. Many thanks, Peter. It's been a lot of fun, Kerry. I'm so pleased we've been able to catch up after these yeah. such a long time. It is. I've really enjoyed this. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to listen to more, please consider becoming a Patreon, where you will get access to over 100 past episodes, weekly podcasts, plus photography, exclusive content, and prizes. To join, visit patreon.com forward slash casting with Kerry Jones or see the link on my website castingwithkerryjones.com well that's all for now tight lines and don't strike too soon <laughs>